you know, and it's not hard for that to happen. Anyone who's ever had a handful of different injuries as an athlete could tell you that some just linger more than others. The ability to do road work is a mental thing most of the time because it's like, I don't want to get out there. I want to jog. But when it also be in, in, involves physical ailments, could either one of these fighters have had to cut back on their cardio or sacrifice some of their cardio because doing running on a street pavement is not, they can't do it. The knee swells up, gives them problems. I don't know that that's the case, pure speculation, but when you have an injury, excuse me, <coughs> to the lower body, like a knee injury that lingers, cardio would be an area where you can see possibly some scaling back, right? As for Bukalkis, released from the USC 2021, after sustaining a knee injury from an oblique kick by Khalil Roundtree. If you don't know what that kick is, it's the kick. It can be thrown from two different angles, but it's ultimately when a kick is thrown down at an angle. <coughs> Excuse me, my goodness. Being thrown down, downward angle onto the knee to force the knee to either hyperextend or just simply bend inwards, ultimately just, you know, tweaking, torquing the knee in a non-natural direction. <clears throat> if it lands the right way, immediate injury could be career-threatening. In the case of Modestus, that's the reason why that kick should be made illegal. I've talked to coaches, talked to athletes. It's uh, not necessary. Now, I'm not blaming Cleo Roundtree. It's within the rules, but kick can be devastating, can end a career. In that case, most people thought Modestus may never fight again. The knee injury looked, in replay, it didn't look like terrible, where it's like, oh my gosh, his knees, like, you know, his legs over here, his knees over here. It um, it looked like it was, you know, just, you know, partially, a partial tear of some kind, like, bent, you know, in the wrong direction. So, with that said, he suffered the injury. <laughs> he goes ahead and, you know, gets cut. Gets let go. Comes back like 13, 14 months later in Cage Warriors. Gets a win. Fights again shortly thereafter. Fought again in December this past year against Chuck Campbell. Got another win. And now the UFC picks him back up. I'm not sure if the stars aligned. Maybe even Dane and the UFC told him, look, we're going to let you go after the knee injury. I imagine the knee injury was covered or on the UFC because it happened in the cage, right? In a fight, UFC fight. So it gets the whole rehab, and they tell him, listen, get yourself back together. If we're hearing good things from the doctors, and you, you get yourself a win or two back in Cage Warriors, we'll bring you back in here. Because that's what ended up happening. So Medesis, back in there, looks pretty good. From those prior two fights in Cage Warriors against OK Competition, he was still on his bicycle, circling, moving. The knee didn't look to be a factor. And that's for both fighters in their fights. The knees did not look to be a factor. So any speculation about them having lingering injuries is, again, just pure speculation. So Modestus, he's an active striker with good footwork. He does lack one-punch KO power, but he can pick apart an opponent over the course of three rounds. When he faces forward pressure, someone who's coming like right at him, he has the footwork and the energy and the cardio to circle, even in a smaller cage. His grappling offense is more or less non-existent. Zero takedowns the entire time in the UFC. So no takedown, no wrestling. But he does have 100% takedown defense, as we mentioned before. 
His split decision win over Michael or Michelle or Mikel Olasheshik in 2021, that has aged pretty well. He it was a split decision loss. He lost the fight, yes. Well, one, one judge thought he won. Olasheshik is 4 1 in the UFC, has an 18 5 overall record, and looks pretty good. So, not a bad loss. Some losses, you know, not created equal. That one has aged well. Now, most people don't think of Modestus as a big-time finisher, knockout power, and uh, and that's also the way I kind of remembered him. I'm like, oh, he's a striker, you know, high volume, goes to decision. It's weird how you can perceive or think you have a general understanding of how a fighter fights, and then you go back, watch their film, you go back, do a little, you know, stats, pull some stuff out, and you realize he has an 85% finish rate. <laughs> Of his 13 wins, 11 of them by finish. So he clearly does have finishing ability. Maybe not one-punch knockout ability, but he's got finishing ability. How could he finish Tyson Pedro here? I don't think it's in round one with like a kick or a punch or one punch. I don't think that happens. But could Modestus drag Tyson Pedro deeper into the fight, deeper waters, and then pick up a late-round TKO finish? Just saying, just saying. <clears throat> Here's what we see happening here. Either Pedro knocks out Modestus early, drops the hammer, right? Connects with something really early. Or Modestus wins the war of attrition. Here's a stat for you. In 12 pro fights for Pedro, all 12 pro fights, he has gone past round one only twice. Dos veces for my Spanish brothers out there. Two times. Here's what happened in both those situations. One time... Got knocked out in round three by Rua. Not really a knockout. It was just he was just so tired he couldn't function anymore. And the second time he lost by decision. So going past round one is not a winning strategy for Tyson Pedro. It's partially because of the cardio. Now MMA math doesn't always work out. It's not always a hundred percent bulletproof. But in some cases, the MMA math paints a picture. It gives us an idea. If you, for example, had bet on Tyson Pedro in his last fight to win in round one, would that have made you like a rocket scientist? Last fight, he wins in round one over Harry Hunsucker. TKO. Prior fight, round one. Leg kicks, Aguilar Round one. Going all the way back to his prior wins in like 2018, round one. 2017, round one. 16, round one, round one, round He's never won a fight that does go beyond round one. All his wins are in round one by a finish. So, <clears throat> my point to you is sometimes looking at math could be distorting. In this case, I think it paints a very, very clear picture. We have big concerns about Pedro beyond the first round. Okay, just want to triple down on that one. Modestus knows how to circle away from his opponent's power. If he uses good footwork, his fighter IQ to survive the first wave of attacks from Pedro, we think in round two and three, Tyson was gonna, is going to be a shell of himself and there'll be a big cardio advantage there for Modestus. Now, our theory about this cardio in round two, round three for Pedro, I know we're piling on here and you can see obviously we're, we're leaning towards Bacalcus. This all goes out the window though. That whole fun fun theory I'm talking about of Bukalkas extending him. The shit hits the fan if Pedro just lands one hard-ass punch and clips Bukalkas. Bukalkas doesn't have an amazing chin. 
has been finished before. And Pedro's known for knocking people out, you know. So it needs to be considered, right? Modestus has been finished three times in round number one, once in round two. So he has been knocked out early in fights. And again, Pedro has the ability. The first round knockout prop for Tyson Pedro is not available yet. I looked it up, but it'll be on our radar. We're going to go with Modestus Bacalcus, though. Third round, TKO or submission. TKO because of Pedro just balling up. Submission because Pedro exposes his back or his neck. Bacalcus does a little bit of a club and sub type of thing. Again, we don't see Modestus hurting Tyson Pedro early on. It's going to have to happen later on. The bets we like for this fight are the fight knock with a distance is minus 305. That covers you both sides. We'll probably parlay that. And that's with a lot of confidence. I mean, think about it. If you like Dyson Pedro, you're, you're not talking about decision, right? <clears throat> it's going to be him landing something sharp. He does have some submissions on his background, too. Matter of fact, he's got five submissions and four TKOs. So even more submissions on his resume than knockouts for Tyson Pedro. But anyway, that minus 305 covers you both sides. Parlay with confidence. The under two and a half at minus 225. Love it as well. Maybe parlay that one. And one parlay, probably the minus 305 or another one. And then Pedro into the distance is minus 140. This is a clear indication. The books, everyone is on this. Tyson Pedro, his likely path to victory is going to be some kind of a finish. That's not rocket science. The last prop, though. Modestus Bukalkis into the distance is plus 515. That's juicy. Maybe it moves around. These are early numbers coming out of that five dimes it's either five dimes or betway so that's not available like on DraftKings yet or FanDuel or even like BetMGM but that price tag at first glance I love it uh, we'll be all over that because it's not that we again think that Modestus is gonna knock him out early no but Modestus 85% finish rate <clears throat> Tyson Pedro never goes to you know the full distance something gives here and again, if Modestus wins the fight by a TKO or a submission, it's going to be more so because of the gas tank of Tyson Pedro. So there's your breakdown, guys. Uh, just one final thought on this fight. I did really lean towards Pedro pre-fight. Uh, you know, I, there's a bit of hype behind him. He's you know, tattoos, the lineage, you know, the family, around good mixed martial arts, good trainers, good coaches, the whole nine. There's a lot to like. Um, but this this money line could be... The potential, and that's what it's being, you know, fluffed up at. So at plus money here, if we didn't even see the money line at first and just did an actual real breakdown and just evaluated the way we, we've done just now without the money line, we would have been thinking, oh, you know, maybe Pedro's a slight favorite because he's, you know, got the hype and stuff, but slight favorite like around maybe 150, minus 150 to minus 170 range. At minus 240, I think you have to really consider a bet here on Modestus, and if you're going to do that, Take it into the distance. There's no way in a normal circumstance, at least based upon their background, that Tyson Pedro goes the full distance. So that's your breakdown, guys. Super long. I apologize. Should be the last fight on the prelim card, though. So it'll be the main event in the prelim card, at least according to my current schedule. We'll see what happens. All right, guys. Moving on now, which should be, again, last fight in the main card. Prelim card, I mean. I apologize if it's not, but that's what we have now. All right, guys. Let's move on.
All right, moving up the card. Next fight's going to be a light heavyweight battle at 205 pounds between the Australian fighter Jimmy Crute, who hails from Melbourne, Australia, versus Alonzo Menafield, the American fighter who's from Texas. Get you the pick real quickly. We like Alonzo Menafield into the distance. That's our prediction. Now, Menafield is the underdog here at plus 170, so I believe into the distance is like plus 335 to plus 340. Great spot. Menafield's got a high finish rate. I think this fight is a pick 'em. Uh, either guy could win it. Uh, I think Crute's got the advantage in a few areas like wrestling, but when it comes to just standing and banging, I think either guy's got a chance here. And so we are on the side of Alonzo Menafield to go down there and spoil the parade for Jimmy Crute, who'll be fighting in his home country, right? As for the particulars, Jimmy Crute is 12 and 3 overall, 2 and 3 in his last five fights. He's 26 years old in 11 months, so about to be 27. A bit younger here by about eight years younger than Menafield. And Crute is six foot two in height, the 74 inch reach. He trains out of Greco and Stewie's house. As for Mr. Menafield, he goes by Otomic. He's 13 and three overall, four and one in his last five fights. Hails out of Texas, as we mentioned before, 35 years old, six foot in height. So giving up about two inches in height with a 76 inch reach, but he'll have the two inch reach advantage. Trains out of Fortis MMA, very well known gym. Few, a few more numbers in these two guys. Jimmy Crute is a right-handed fighter or orthodox stance fighter. 15 total boxing, mixed martial arts, amateur, total all his bouts combined, 15. Average fight time, 4 minutes, 37 seconds. I am not a math wizard, but that is less than 5 minutes. So his average fight time is usually ending the fight in round 1, for better or for worse. Averages 4.33 strikes per minute, absorbs 2.67. Lands 4.87 takedowns per 15 minutes, or 4.87 takedowns per three-round fight, sporting a 60% takedown defense. What did Crute do well? Good wrestler, high finish rate, four TKOs and two subs. His last six wins have all been finishes. Over that period, four TKOs and two subs, excuse me. Powerful right hand. Nice lower leg kicks, positive striking ratio. Our concerns for him, fighter IQ, inconsistency, and durability. He is two and three in his last five fights. That's what, we mean, that's what we mean when we say inconsistent. Granted, one of those fights he can be excused for. We'll talk about that. As for Menafield, he is also an orthodox stance fighter. 18 total bouts under his record. Average fight time, six minutes and 12 seconds. Going a little bit longer than Crute. Going into round number two. Averaging just under four strikes per minute, absorbing 3.24 per minute. Positive striking ratio. Not much wrestling, just under one takedown per fight with 85% takedown defense. What does Alonso do well? Finish rate, 12 of, his, 12 of his 13 wins are by finish. He'll have the reach advantage in this matchup. He's on a hot streak, 4-1 in his last five fights. Very durable. In 18 total fights, only been finished one time. Very athletic, very explosive. If you've never watched him before, never seen a picture of this guy or video of him, he is built like an NFL linebacker. Very strong. Jacked. Our main concern for Alonzo is simply the cardio. I want to preface this. He's got a decision. Matter of fact, I think like four of his seven UFC fights, he's got a decision. So he can go to decision. He can even win by decision. That's how he beat William Knight. It's that his, you know... His abilities, after he gets tired, start to wane. His ability to do things, that's where he starts to struggle later in the fight. And that's where I think Crute can have a window or windows of opportunity. 
So like Alonzo Menafield to witness at the distance, regardless of who you like to win, consider this one. I think the best betting spots of this fight are not either side of the money line. They're going to be distance related. It would be shocking if this fight gets into like over two and a half rounds, makes it the full distance. It would be shocking. It was also shocking when William Knight and my man Alonzo Menafield went to full decision. So that could, it's happened before type of thing. But this matchup, I think the way Jamie Crute fights, you combine that with the way Alonzo Menafield fights, your best bets are going to be distance related, which we'll talk about right at the very end here. For Mr. Menafield, he has an impressive physique, legit knockout power. In the midst of a nice hot streak, as we mentioned before, only been finished one time in his pro career. And for an athlete with a strong physique, he has proven that he can go the distance. He's gone to the decision in four of his seven UFC fights. He does have the power to end fights with one punch. He's done it before. There's a handful of fights you could look up of him just cracking people with one punch. And Crute has been finished with one punch before. Matter of fact, pull up the Hill fight, Jamal Hill fight. Jamal just hit him with the same punch twice within a matter of about you know 45 seconds, and that was all she wrote. Many feel will have a reach advantage in this fight. I mean, two inches, not a huge deal, but he'll have that advantage. In terms of wrestling, though, Menafield's limited, and that's where things can get interesting because he doesn't have much at wrestling offense. He's got good wrestling defense, 85%. Cruz definitely going to look to test him in that area. As for Cruz, he'll be fighting on his home turf in front of family and friends, so he'll get the extra juices, you know, hear the fans. Instead of fighting, let's say, either abroad, enemy territory, or, God forbid, in the apex, a very sterile environment. Crute is an excellent wrestler, and the numbers support that, averaging 3.9 takedowns per fight or per 15 minutes, 3.91 to be specific. So about four takedowns per fight. That's obviously over one takedown per round. Crute will be challenged. It'll be harder for him early on to take down Menafield. Let me put it this way. So he'll be best off trying to save some of his takedown attempts, I think, after the one and a half round mark. Because early on, you've got Menafield with a full gas tank. He is very explosive. He is very dynamic. He's got 85% takedown defense. I think it'll be very difficult for Crew to take down Menafield later on. He wants to do that later in the fight. He's got good lower leg kicks. That's Crew. He has very powerful lower leg kicks. Now, if you remember a fight he had, mm, I'm trying to think which, which one it was. It was, it was whatever, two years ago or so. He injured his lower leg from a lower leg kick. And it was a weird injury. It wasn't the full snappage of the leg. It was just sort of like, it was like a dead leg. His, his ankle was kind of flopping. He wanted to keep fighting, but the fight was, was called. That was, one, that was one of his last, he has three losses over his last five fights. That was one of them. So you can't really give him complete blame for that loss. It was a fluke leg thing. I think it was a nerve thing. So he popped right back from that, no big deal. Um, but he also delivers very good lower leg kicks himself. The concerns we have for Crute are, are just strictly durability, fighter IQ, inconsistency. You watch him against John Maul Hill. That was a little over a year ago. And he gets dropped. He pops right back up. He's trying to fight right away. He's dropped again. So we have, you know, some concerns there. Now, are we saying he's chinny? No, no, no. I don't, I'm not suggesting he's chinny. I think Crute's a really tough dude. I mean, if he was, if he was American, we would refer to him like as, you know, as a good old, Good old white boy, you know, maybe even a redneck from like Oklahoma. It looks like he would fit in well there with his mullet that he's wearing there. Well, I don't know if he's got the mullet now. 
nonetheless, we like Crute. He is a tough guy. He is someone that you know you could root for, and he can win this fight. And mind you, he is favored around minus two hundred. That seems to be a little off, in my opinion. So his last five fights, he's two and three. Has he been unlucky, or is he fragile? We'll find out some of the answers to some of those questions in this fight because he's fighting a guy in Menafield who definitely swings with some vicious intent. Either guy connects in the right punch. We could see the fight over. I think we know that Menafield can take a punch a little bit more than we know that Crew can take a punch. When you look at Menafield's resume, decisions with guys like Maxine Gresham, guys like William Knight, say what you want to say about William Knight, but he does throw with some steam. So he's gone to some decisions Da Unjung, who just got to finish himself last weekend. So the point is, I have a little more faith in the, the chin and durability of Menafield if this fight goes longer. Though the fight goes longer and Crute wrestles Menafield, he can capture rounds two and three on the scorecards and then give himself a decision win, which basically would throw all of my theories out the window, right? But I just don't see a decision going on here, guys. I think this fight's going to have some violence. And we'll see someone's getting hands, someone's hand getting raised within that first three rounds. Now, the betting spots we'd like for this fight. The fight going the distance is minus 325. Maybe a potential parlay piece. I'm sorry, the fight not going the distance. What am I saying? The fight not going the distance at minus 325. Potential good parlay piece. Under two and a half rounds at minus 225. Fight doesn't start round three. We don't have a price on that yet. Menafield into the distance is plus 260. That's what I meant before. I said plus three something. I think that's Menafield by KO is plus three something. But if you're going to play Menafield, you know, just look at the track record. He has some decision wins. I just think in this matchup, it's more likely it's a finish. So for any any kind of finish for Menafield, it's plus 260. Crute to win into the distance is lined at minus 110. We're not going to play it. But I'm going to highlight it for you because this to me is a like just a little marker. The books have a high level of confidence in crew in this spot. You're talking about even money for any kind of finish for crew. We just said that uh, this this gentleman here, Mr. Alonzo Menafield, is durable. He's only been finished one time in his career, and he's been to decision four of his seven UFC fights. So whether win or lose, he still is capable of going the distance. I like Crute, but is Crute that much of a finisher? So, I, mean, I don't know. The books maybe know something we don't know. They, they crush the numbers. They're never wrong, right? I'm not going to play that spot. But uh, interesting that that line is priced at that minus 110 price tag. So in any case, again, just to summarize, we are on Alonzo Menafield, the American, to come over and get the upset win. Who knows where the line's going to move from here? I think in the real world, it should move closer, right? I think Alonzo Menafield's got plenty of opportunity to win the fight. But who knows? Either way, we're going to make some plays in the distance of this fight. And we may not even get to the window when it comes to the money line. We may not even play it. Uh, and why do you have to when you have so many opportunities with distance props that you, you feel so confident in? I learned that the other day, too, with... What fight was that? It was the Rodriguez fight a few weeks ago where I forgot he was fighting, but he lost and he got knocked out by the other Brazilian. And post-fight, I thought to myself, why did I even tinker with the money line? Everyone knew that the fight probably was going to see some balance like under one and a half, under two and a half. I'm going to take that angle with this fight. 
I'm not going to dabble with the either side of the money line here when we know it comes down to one punch for either guy, and we're going to probably just see something happen into the distance. That's your breakdown, guys. Let's move on. Working our way up the main card, heavyweight bout, 265 pounders, Justin Taffa, who goes by Badman out of Australia, facing off against Parker Porter, the American heavyweight. I'll give you the pick right now. i get it out the way. We like Taffa to win the fight in the first round by a knockout. We'll discuss the prices on some of these props as we mention them throughout the breakdown. But that's our pick. Taffa first round knockout. As for the details in these two fighters, Taffa is 5-3 and three overall. 2-3 and three in his last five fights. The very, very ever so slight favor here at minus 120. That could flip. It's priced accordingly. We like Taffa to win, but this is a good line here, especially if you like Taffa the way we do. You're getting even money, right? So Taffa's 29 years old, 6 foot in height, 74 inch reach. Not the tallest heavyweight, but neither is Parker. Parker's also 6 foot in height with about a 75 inch reach. So he'll have a technically a 1 inch reach advantage, but the same height. Porter is 13 and 7 overall, 3 and 2 in his last 5 fights. Hails out of New Britain, Connecticut. He's a Northeasterner. 37 years old, young, not too old for a heavyweight, uh, but about eight years older than his opponent here, Justin Taffa, who's 29. It feels like Taffa's older, right? As reporter, he's uh, out of underdog mixed martial arts. Okay, some more numbers on these two fighters. Let's talk about Mr. Taffa first. Southpaw, that's always an adjustment, right? He's had nine total bouts in his career. That's the one amateur bout in eight pro fights. Average fight time, seven minutes, 12 seconds. Usually gets into round number two. Lands about five strikes per minute, absorbing 5.94. Yes, that's bigger than the first number. It's a negative striking ratio. Not a good stat to have. Something he needs to improve upon if he plans to stick around the UFC for a while. For takedowns, none. Nil. No takedowns yet for Justin Toff in the UFC but does sport a 100% takedown defense. What's it like about Taffa? High finish rate. All of his finishes have been knockouts. He's a southpaw. What's to be concerned about? Inconsistent. Boxing defense isn't great. Obviously, negative striking ratio. All these heavyweights tend to slow down after round one, but let me preface this with Justin. I feel like with Justin Taffa, he's, he particularly slows down even more. So a little concerned about his cardio if we get into round two and three. And then the last bit of concern for Taffa is the competition level. You know, he's fighting against, you know, like his biggest win, for example. The biggest win of his career is probably Harry Hunsucker or Juan Adams. You know what I mean? That's what we're dealing with. So Justin hasn't really been tested. And, well, I shouldn't say hasn't been tested. He's got some losses. He hasn't picked up a signature win just quite yet. As for Porter, he's a orthodox fighter, right-handed fighter, 20 total fights. Average fight time, 10 minutes, 19 seconds. Lands about 6.49 strikes per minute. Nice high volume, but absorbs 6.32. So what we can tell from both fighters is they're they're going to do some swinging and they're going to eat some punches. <laughs> so at some point, we probably see someone hit the deck, right? When the bodies hit the floor. For wrestling numbers on Porter, averaging 1.45 takedowns per 15 minutes or about a takedown and a half per fight with 50% takedown defense. What does Porter do well? He hangs in there. He's, you know, guy's not to give up. He's got three wins in his last four fights. He's a gritty guy, blue collar. Not going to finish you, but he'll hang around. 
He's got pretty good experience. He has what, 20 total mixed martial arts fights compared to eight for Tafa, so definitely more cage time. And then his claim to fame is he once fought John Jones. Yes, the John Jones. Way back 2008 in WCF, so prior to, to their UFC Daves. And it lasted all of 36 seconds. <laughs> and uh, Porter lost to Mr. John Jones. You know, John Jones is like 26 and one, something like that. But at least he has the experience. He, he shared the cage, even though it was a brief period of time. He can always tell his friends and family, co-workers, I fought John Jones, you know. He's got that experience under his belt. I know I'm kind of making a joke of it, but seriously, he does have that experience. Now, the concerns for him lacks a signature win, like we mentioned before. He's always a bit undersized, though in this matchup, he'll be about the same size, but he tends to be more of a bulkier, fire hydrant type of build. Uh, durability is definitely a concern. He's been finishing six of his seven losses, and he's been finishing the first round of like his last three losses, which are scattered over the last like you know two, three years. And then he lacks finishing ability. So his three recent wins in the UFC were all decisions. A few more notes here. So Tafa by first round knockout is our prediction. For the people that have been talking about this card lacking star power or some of the fights in this card possibly not belonging on this card, I'll succumb to that argument or to those claims when it pertains to this fight because this is on the main card. Now, it's heavyweight, so heavyweight's kind of like that it's it's a it's a fine line between it's a good fight and athletes and just a freak show, right? Uh, so in MMA, ultimately, some of it is a bit of a freak show. So just seeing two big guys get sloppy and then maybe seeing one of them fall and hit the deck, you'll hear their body hit the the canvas. It'll be a baby earthquake. For those reasons, it's on this main card because otherwise, when you're looking at the reality that Parker Porter, an American from Connecticut, this is the pinnacle of his career. My man's going all the way to Australia, traveling far away from home, has a shot to win, you know, pay-per-view card, and he's on the main event. He's only a few fights off of the main card. And for Tafa, he's getting this fight. Why? Well, he, he's Australian. They needed to fill the card. He fits the bill. And probably the same thing for Porter. It's like they wanted Justin to have a fighter that he could probably beat. Porter fits the bill. Um, I mean, I'm sure there was Chase Sherman. Some other guys were probably being considered as well. Nonetheless, uh, we get this matchup, and I personally, personal opinion, believe this would be better off on like a UFC Vegas card, fight night card, especially if it's main card. Like this, it should be on the prelim card if you're going to do it for a pay-per-view event of this magnitude, right? All that out the way, kind of got my preface, prefaced my next few statements. We should see some fireworks. We could see a bit of a, a show and someone getting finished. Porter is not a very good hammer, but yeah, you know that you know the rest of the statement, right? He's a damn good nail, and uh, I believe Tafa is going to be the hammer, and Porter will be the nail. We mentioned Porter fought John Jones, has pretty good experience, has more time in the octagon. You could argue he's holding his own right now in his career, and his career is like a half glass full, half glass empty type situation where he is three and one in his last four fights. Then again, all three wins were, you know, like Parisian and you know lower level guys like that, and then they were all by decision. Hasn't had a finish in like four years since 2019. It's now 2023, right? So you could look at his 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 up and downs different ways. If you just watch him fight, you know, 
Against weak competition, he has a chance. Against anything that's a step up, he's outside of his element. You know what I mean? Porter is 5-3 and three in his last eight fights. Again, that looks good, right? On the flip side, all three of the losses in that 5-8 and eight run, he got finished in round one. <laughs> so it just depends on how you're looking at it, right? The UFC is definitely hooking up Tafa in this fight. They're giving him a match at home, right? Number one. Number two, I believe an inferior opponent. And that leads me back around to the money line. I don't want to play conspiracy theory about things that I have no idea about. But since Tafa's home, and since the analysis points towards him being the potential pick for us, even without seeing lines, right? I'm a bit like taken back why the line is so close or even having him anywhere near plus money, he's also fighting at home. So here's my conspiracy theory for this little breakdown, my little nugget. Maybe something's going on in the Tafa camp. The bookies, they're like, they, they're, they're tuned into everything. They know beyond what we know. They don't just review stats. You know, they're actually, you know, I've got little elves in the corner of different places around the mixed martial arts world. So possibly something's going on with Tafa where maybe he had something within camp. Maybe there's a news story out there I wasn't aware of. Maybe you can comment down below. Let us know if you've heard something. But it was a little bit weird after doing this breakdown and then looking at the money line and saying, "My wow, he's he's at picking prices. It's a good value. We don't see how Porter can hold up here with Tafa. I guess what we might be doing, though, too, is we might be overrating Tafa. <laughs> maybe in our analysis, we're giving him too high of a grade in a few areas, and maybe he's not as deserving. And so what maybe unfolds is more of an even fight than what we're predicting, which we see Justin Taffa getting to Porter early, knocking him down, finishing the fight. All right. So back to the last few points here, Taffa doesn't have to worry about the punching power of Porter. So if, if Taffa wants to come in early, be a little reckless, just land a few punches, try to knock down Porter, he should feel comfortable taking a few blows in exchange because, again, Porter hasn't knocked someone out in years, doesn't really have knockout power. Just another reason why Hoffa should be able to just do what he wants to do, like play bully ball, like get in his face, start swinging. <clears throat> I believe early on, especially when Porter is fresh and hasn't gotten stung yet, he'll give plenty of opportunities. There'll be plenty of windows there for Justin Hoffa to counter him and catch him. And once he catches him one time, I think that'll be it. The betting spots. What bets do we like here for this fight? Surprisingly, the way the bookies have it, it appears that they're not so sure this fight is going to see violence because the fight not going to distance is minus 200. And again, if you just didn't know their names and you're like, heavyweight bout, 265 pounds, MMA? 15 minutes? Yeah, no, I'm taking the no distance, right? Well, a guy like... Porter is known to go in the distance. So here we go. You know what I mean? But So it's embedded here. It's built into these lines. I I just think, again, the way Justin Taffa fights, he's sort of a killer, be, kill, killer be killed type of fighter. I believe he creates a finish somehow, either him getting finished or him getting the finish. At minus 200, we're going to find a way to play that. Maybe straight up, maybe parlay it too. A lot of confidence there. Under two and a half, minus 140. Whew. I mean, that's like the, that's got a bullseye around it because that's a great price tag. And once again, we just don't feel like this fight gets much deeper than, I mean, our predictions round one, 
But let's say we get into round two. I think we don't finish round two either. So under two and a half at minus 140, excellent. Toffa into the distance is plus 125. Okay. You know, you're not really getting much more value than if you just bet Toffa on the money line. Because, right, Toffa is sitting currently around, well, minus 120. You're getting a little bit of value there. But still, plus 125 into the distance for Toffa. That's probably how he gets it done anyway. Toffa by knockout, TKO, or DQ in round one is plus 350. I like that spot. We'll play that spot straight up. Maybe a half unit, 50 bucks on that spot. Again, the thinking is he could possibly catch a fighter like um, Porter early. Porter has been knocked out, finished in round one in his last three losses, which have all happened within his last eight fights. You know what I mean? So it's possible. It's possible. Anyway, that's our breakdown for this fight, guys. Um, probably spent too much time on it, but wanted to give a thorough breakdown. I think your best bet in this fight is, again, staying far away from the money line. You know, do yourself the favor of either not betting on it. That's always okay. That's always on the table. But if you're going to bet on it, maybe find some neutral territory, a way you can avoid the judges, a way you can avoid uh, one person maybe just kind of letting you down. And say to yourself, just ask yourself the questions. Does this fight to you go the full distance? Use your common sense. Use your MMA brain. If you think it goes the full distance, and it could, you're getting plus money there. Plus 150 range around there. If you're with us and you're you're on our side of the camp, we're saying the fight is going to see some violence. We think Tafa connects. If he doesn't connect, maybe he gasses out. Doesn't do great when he gets tired. Something gives two heavyweights. Minus 200 like that spot a lot so we'll, we'll mess around with this as always our full bet tip sheet will be out via our Substack newsletter i'm gonna encourage you again subscribe to our Substack newsletter the link is down below it's absolutely free you get a full card breakdown written up all the fights we're talking about right here here in a video format you receive an actual newsletter nice and condensed format right to your email once a week for the ufc card or bellator card or PFL card, or Invicta card, whatever card we're discussing, one email, full card, and then you get the tip sheet about 48 hours before the event kicks off. The tip sheet is our full spreadsheet of all of our bets for the card. So we'll have like seven to eight prop bets in there, two or three standard parlays, a special, which would be some kind of parlay that we coin a special of some kind. And uh, we'll have, of course, a few straight plays, just some bets that we feel comfortable straight up betting. But to get all that information, which is 100% for free, you're not subscribing to some kind of massive uh, you know, 10-year subscription. There's no monthly cost. There's no paywall, no PayPal, no Patreon, none of the payness. Uh, you can subscribe for free to that newsletter. It just requires your email. That's through Substack. And again, that link is down below in our description. So subscribe to our Substack newsletter. Follow us on the Twitter. Follow us on the Instagram. That's how you can support our work. If you want to support our content, you want to see more content like this, subscribe to all these different aspects of our social media. Subscribe to our podcast. This right here is available also via our podcast. Okay, enough promo talk. Thank you for following us. I appreciate it. We appreciate your support. That's the breakdown here for this fight for Justin Toffa versus Parker Porter. Let's move on. Next up, we have a welterweight bout, 170 pounders between Randy Brown, who goes by Rude Boy, versus Jack Della Maddalena. We like Maddalena to win the fight 
into the distance, most likely around two, maybe around three type of thing. Randy Brown's a very good fighter. The money line, though, that's something else we'll talk about. Minus 300 for Madalena, plus 250 for Randy Brown. Yeah, we like Madalena, but it's a bit excessive. Uh, the one prop here that excited us was Randy Brown by decision. We'll talk about that at the very end, but that prop is priced. It's priced right, put it that way. Okay, as for the particulars in these two fighters, Randy Brown is 16-4 and four overall, 4-1 four in his last five fights. The dog here, out of Queens, New York, 32 years old, 6'3 in height with a 78-inch reach, and he's out of Budokan Martial Arts Academy. As for Mr. Madalena, 13-2 overall, on a 13-fight winning streak after starting his career 0-2. Right? Amazing. Not how you start, it's how you finish. Right? That's the, that's the phrase. He's the favorite here, about 3-1 to one favorite, out of Perth, Western Australia, and this fight is being held in Western Australia, Perth to be specific, because for us silly Americans over here, we're bad with geography. We think Australia is just one city or one place. Meanwhile, Australia is quite a big place. There's several time zones, and there's Eastern Australia, Western Australia, and so on and so on. For Mr. Madeline, he's 26 years old, 5'11", 73-inch reach. So the reach advantage significantly on the size of on the side of Randy Brown, excuse me. He'll have a 5-inch reach advantage and roughly about a 4-inch height advantage. The height's one thing, okay, whatever, but the reach is a, is a factor. And I think that's part of the recipe for success for Randy Brown. That's how he partially would win the fight is working at range using his jab. We'll talk more about that. A few more numbers in these two fighters from Madalena. He fights out of both stances. He'll go back and forth with ease. He's got 16 total fights on his resume. Average fight time about six minutes. Lands a whopping 8.45 strikes per minute. Very high volume. Then again, his fights don't go very long. So you imagine that volume would taper off if he went to longer fights. Absorbs 4.22. So very good ratio. Like a two to one ratio in terms of him landing like two punches and then absorbing one. Good takedown defense, 71% to be exact. Has no takedowns officially yet in his uh, UFC run. What does he do well? High finish rate. 12 of, his, 12 of his 13 wins have been by finish. Good footwork. Could move stances back and forth. Forward pressure. The high volume, 8.45 strikes per minute, right? You love all that. He's also fighting literally home court advantage. Not just in Australia, but in the city that he's you know from. Our concerns for him, just two, only two that we could think of. Competition level, he's been mowing through the competition that's been in front of him, including the UFC competition. But Randy Brown, by far, will be his toughest opponent to date. The biggest win he's had thus far was against Ramazan Emev. Okay fighter, decent record, but you know Emev is, I don't think he's as good as Randy Brown. I think Randy Brown's going to be the biggest test for him. And then the second thing is, I remember putting my notes here, no risk it, no biscuit. <laughs> By the way, all the notes that I'm reading from here for these breakdowns, these are available via Google Drive. And what I mean by that is if you go down to the description down below, you'll see a link to our Google Drive. We have shared folders there. And for every single one of the cards that we cover, there'll be the write-up in our newsletter. That's one thing. The video breakdown, which you're listening to right now. But to see our raw notes where you can actually see the fighter stats, like 8.45 strikes per minute, those type of things that we put all together in a word pad or a word document, excuse me, that's all available via our Google Drive, completely free. Whether you're a capper, just want to compare your notes, 
Maybe you're just a fan. Maybe you wanted to cap this the fights this weekend. You just didn't get around to it. So you want to get just get caught up. Those notes are pretty cool. Yeah, they're available on our Google Drive. The link's down below. It's free. You just click the link to the Google Drive. The share folder's right there. You're done. No paying, no subscribing, nothing like that. So no risk it, no biscuit. And what does that mean? What am I implying? What I'm saying is that Madalena, if he gets into a stand-up like trading in the phone booth type of scenario, he's not going to back up. Take a look at this guy's face. He's got a nose that like a river. His nose is all over the place. He looks like he's been in a few fights. He looks like he could be a gangster. You know, it's just sort of the the face, you know, how, how he looks. So my point is, if he gets into a trading battle, you know, anything's possible. And Brown's a good striker, and he's got hands too. So I just hope we don't get into that area. But, uh, yeah, no risk it, no biscuit. All right, as for Mr. Randy Brown, real quickly, average fight time about 11 minutes, lands 4.38 strikes per minute, absorbs, absorbs 3.25. Positive output, but not nearly the, the higher volume that we saw there for the numbers for Madalena. 28 total fights for Randy Brown. He fights out of a right-handed stance. Averages about a half a takedown per fight. Same stand-up takedown defense, 71% takedown defense, excuse me. He's got good length, solid chin, long jab, has fought good competition, definitely has the strength of advantage or strength of schedule advantage. Our concerns for him, takedown defense, gets a little sloppy at times, and his size disadvantage, meaning if he's up against the fence and you got Madalena who's shorter, who's now underneath his chin. Just some things to consider. Okay, so we like Madalena inside the distance to win the fight. That's our prediction. This does have the potential to be one of the closest fights in the card and maybe even the best one where it does go late. We still see a finish, but it's late in round three where both guys are, you know, pushing themselves to the limit. These guys come off as two fighters who you know really enjoy this and they're willing to extend themselves in there. You know, I think it comes down to who executes their game plan. And we'll talk about the game plans here. For Randy Brown, he is a long-range sniper. Just look at the way he's built. He'll have the size advantage, right? He has a nice long jab. He turns, makes as much of his body get into that jab. So it's a nice long jab. He can hit you from a range where you can't hit him type of thing. He averages just about 4.5 strikes per minute while observing 3.25, a positive ratio, not very high volume. Again, he'll have a 4-inch height advantage and about a 4-inch reach advantage. Brown is going to be aware of the fact that Madalena is coming to grapple a little bit, even stand-up grappling, because, again, Madalena doesn't have any takedowns yet in the UFC, but he does do a little grappling against defense. He will take a takedown if it's there. For Brown, he knows he has to keep him off his hips, right? Defend. And it's going to be in the back of his mind. If he gets taken down, Brown can get back up, but it's something he's going to have to be mindful of. Brown should have the clear-cut striking advantage. He's going to touch his opponent from farther away. That's one thing. Nice combination, fluid hands. Jack is more, Jack Della that is, Jack is more of a bruiser, like old school boxer, get you against the cage and like, you know, start slugging you. So for Randy Brown, the key to victory is stand up fight, work at range, use his size as an advantage. For Atlanta, big time hot streak, right? 13 fights in a row. Guy looks like he's been in 13 street fights. You gotta see the nose if you haven't seen him already. He can do the damage on the feet or on the ground. He needs to be mindful of the hooks, the power of Randy Brown. Randy Brown's a big guy. He definitely probably cuts weight to get down to this. He's a very tall man. Six foot three-ish range, you know? 
He carries power. He's got those long limbs where once he connects the right way, the right angle, the right physics, whatever, he can do the damage. So for Madalena, his safest path to victory is scrape this fight to the ground or neutralize the distance by pushing Randy up against the fence, right? Pushing Randy Brown up against the fence, neutralize the, the distance advantage and work in there and work tight. If he wants to stay at range, it you know it's a battle he can win. Statistically, he's got the higher output, right? 8.45 strikes per minute, statistically. But Randy Brown, he hasn't fought a guy of this caliber yet. So I just would, would be concerned if he takes on the, the mindset of like a Kevin Holland. When Kevin Holland fought Wonder Boy not too long ago, Kevin Holland could have had some ground opportunities. He even gave up some where he you know could have engaged on the ground or had a top position. But he took the the, the position of the fan favorite. Like, I'm going to have a stand-up battle with, with Wonder Boy. We're going to go toe-to-toe like good old times' sake. And we're both veterans. And it's for the fans. And it's for the people. And God bless Kevin Holland. <laughs> but his record has suffered accordingly. It also brought up memories of Nate Diaz. For those who may not have remembered that fight against Leon Edwards, Nate Diaz rocks Leon Edwards. It's late in the fight. It's There's not much time. And Nate Diaz is like, ah, got you. Doesn't, no follow-up punches, just like, I got you. He takes a moment, absorbs the crowd. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, is he going to win this fight? Is he going to pull off an upset? My memory serves me correctly. I don't think that Nate threw another punch for like maybe another minute. <laughs> so it's like there's moments where these fighters just become people. Does Madalena have that moment where he's like, I'm in front of my friends, I'm literally in front of my friends. Like maybe some of his teachers in school, people he rode his bike with around the neighborhood might be in that stadium. This is being held in Perth. He's from Perth. Does that get him riled up in a bad way? Get him distracted? Comes in there, has a Nate Diaz moment, decides I want to stand in trade with Randy Brown and find himself into either a close fight that shouldn't be close or just simply getting himself a loss. And that brings me to the betting spots. Okay, so, well, before I get to the betting spots, in summary, we do like Madalena to win the fight inside the distance. The pace and pressure we feel like will be enough to break Brown at, break Brown at some point. And for Brown, the path to victory that's most likely is getting the fight to the scorecards, doing what he did against Chaos Williams. You know, it was close, split decision, but he eked it out. You can argue that a split decision here would be tough, considering it's in Madalena's backyard. The betting spots. So here we go. The betting spots we like the most of this fight are the fight going over a round and a half. That's sitting at minus 185. The fight doesn't go the distance at minus 200. Madalena into the distance at minus 140. So like all those spots. And then Brown by decision is plus 450. So I mentioned that earlier. That's a really good play because it's not that Madalena can't get finished or Brown you know, lacks finishing power. I, I I just feel as if you know Madalena to get finished it's gonna take it's gonna take a little bit <laughs> just the way that guy is. And for Randy, you know, he goes to a handful of decisions. Uh he's not known for being a big time finisher. Does he hurt people? Yes. Can he finish people? Yeah. But last three fights, Jared Gordon, Chaos Williams, Francisco Trinaldo, all decisions. And had a split decision win there over Chaos Williams. So for him, he usually goes to the scorecards. Now, Madalena, he's the one who typically doesn't go to the scorecards. He's the one who's usually finishing his fights. So his last three fights, all round one wins. 
Something has to give. Now, when you're fighting Ramazan Imev and Danny Roberts and, and Pete Rodriguez and guys like that and getting round one finishes, it, you know, it you got to take it as a grain of salt. He fought Angelusa on Contender Series 2021, late 20, 2021, so about a year and a half ago. Got a win by decision over Lusa. Lusa's okay. So I'm just saying, you know, we got to put it all in perspective. I think Randy Brown is a step over all those guys I just talked about. And so for that reason, I could see this fight getting into round two, getting over the one and a half. And then for Randy Brown, I think his path to victory is finding a long distance fight, you know, winning the marathon. It should be noted, Randy Brown does have finishing ability. Again, I just said he went to the decision last three fights, but he does have finishing ability. And in the case of Madalena, 13 straight fights, 13 straight wins, but he was submitted in his second career fight and he was TKO'd in his first career fight. What a start to the career, right? So for the betting spots, again, just a quick review. We like the fight going over round and a half at minus 185, 185 the fight going the distance at minus 200, Madalena into the distance at minus 140, and Brown by decision at plus 450. That's your breakdown for Randy Brown versus Jack De La Madalena. Let's move on. And we are up to the co-main event. It's going to be an interim title fight, featherweight division between Yari Rodriguez, who goes by El Pantera, versus Joshua Emmett, the American fighter. Not many American fighters on this card. So, Joshua, you're pulling the weight. You got to represent for the States, right, buddy? We'll give you our pick real quickly to get it out of the way for those who need to move on. Maybe you're rushing from one appointment to the next. We like Rodriguez to win the fight inside the distance. Full disclosure, we went back and forth. Our first read on this fight, we like Josh Emmett. Um, and then kind of peeling back the layers, we found ourselves on the side of Rodriguez. We'll go through this with you, try to break it down, try to make sense for you on this fight. The money line bets are not as attractive for us. Even though it's close to the money line, we like some of the prop bets more. We'll talk about those as we you know, wrap this entire breakdown up for you. But again, we like Rodriguez to win the fight inside the distance. As for the numbers in these two guys, 14-3 and three for Rodriguez, 3-1-1 one one in his last five fights. He is out of Mexico, now based out of Chicago, Illinois, 30 years old, 5'11 in height with a 71-inch reach, and he trains out of VFS Academy. As for Mr. Emmett, 18-2 and two overall. He comes in with a 5-0 streak in his last five fights. Nice winning streak. From Sacramento, California, 37 years old, 11 months, about to be 38, so eight years older than your year Rodriguez. Not too old, but getting up there. And Emmett's got a 70-inch reach with a 5'6-inch five, five height. So height-wise, about five inches for your year Rodriguez. And then reach-wise, only one inch for your year. So reach-wise, not much of a deal. A little bit of height there for, yeah, you're not sure how much that will play out as an advantage or not. And if for Joshua, he trains out of Team Alpha Male. A few more numbers in these two guys. Mr. Rodriguez is a southpaw. Average fight time, 13 minutes, 30 seconds. Lands just about 4.67 strikes per minute. Absorbs 4.12. Averages 0.83 takedowns per 15 minutes. Just about one takedown per fight. And I don't know of him as being a guy who's going to do much wrestling. Yair Rodriguez is a guy who fights in the feet. A lot of kicks, combinations, a lot of volume. 
And he has 62% takedown defense. Pretty good. He'll need it here. I don't see Josh doing a ton of wrestling. But he does have some wrestling in his background. So Emmett's a right-handed fighter, orthodox stance. 21 total bouts under his belt between amateur, pro, exhibition. All of them combined. Average fight time, 13 minutes, 10 seconds. Lands 4.28. Strikes per minute. Absorbs 4.29. So basically even output versus what's coming in versus what's going out. And uh, it's never good, right? You, you don't want to be absorbing the same amount of punches you're delivering. You want to you be above that ratio, right? Positive. He's averaging 1.04 takedowns per fight or one takedown per 15 minutes. This is going to be a 25-minute fight if he goes the full distance, right? Five rounds, five minutes around. So we could see him get maybe two takedowns if he were to commit to something like that. I, I think that's his path to finding some... A few rounds is, is uh, you know, getting some grappling going, getting some wrestling, just changing things up, frustrating Yair because for Yair, he wants to work on the feet. That's where he wants to operate. And for Josh Emmett, I think he's got an advantage there. Anyway, for Josh Emmett, uh, takedown defense, 58%. Okay, uh, let's get in here to our write-up on this breakdown. So Rodriguez by TKO in round four is the specific prediction. That's our specific. We're honing in now. Round four, we see the fight going back and forth and eventually a cut becomes the factor because we're going to see some blood here uh, win or lose we're going to see maybe more blood hit the canvas in this fight than all the other fights in the entire car combined like i'm not shitting you both these guys tend to fight with i wouldn't say reckless abandon more so in the case of yair with josh he just tends to cut open you know he bled like a stuffed pig in his last fight with uh with cater uh, so I do expect to see some blood and I think at some point we're going to have a doctor come in and stop the fight and that's the reason why it's a TKO. I don't see it being somebody overwhelming the other one with punches or knocking them down or hurting them. They're both very durable. All right. So as for Emmett coming into this fight, looking for his sixth win in a row and he has a path to win here. We just mentioned it before. We, we, we were first initial breakdown here. We actually liked him. It was after looking at everything that we kind of had a change of heart. But, you know, if he gets some grappling going, if he mushes things up a little bit, if he uses his patience, works from the outside, works behind his jab, really nice jab, and then he's got a really powerful right hand, he also, like assists, he also sits down that right hand. So if he lands it, it, it does some damage. Um, the win over Cater, impressive. He's coming in on a winning streak. So there's a lot of reasons why to like Josh Emmett. And he also does a good job working the body. I love that about him. Now, I imagine with Rodriguez out in the open, it's going to be a little harder work the body because he can just move away. But if Emmett can get Rodriguez's back or shoulders up against the fence or around that area, you'll see Josh work the lower body, the ribs, the stomach area. And, you know, it's just, it's just good discipline, right? None of the fighters do that. Now, Emmett does have a negative striking ratio. And Yair has times where he just will start pouring on like strikes. I'll give you an example. Round one against Max Holloway, he landed 60 strikes. Not throwing, landed. So even though his numbers are like whatever, he's landing, you know, four or five strikes per minute according to his stats, his actual, like, what he can do in a short period of time if he decides to turn it on. And that could be a recipe for disaster with a fighter like Emmett, who's got a negative striking ratio, absorbing four, you know, four and change per minute in terms of strikes. So just, you know, putting it out there.
He's also been in a split decision three times, Mr. Josh Emmett. He's been in decision seven times in his last 11 fights, so a lot of decisions, not much of a finisher. But also within that 11 fights, he went to the split decision three times. Um, that's not a coincidence. That's a byproduct of his fighting style. He's willing to be a little patient. He won't back down from a fight, but he's be, he will to be a little more patient than someone like Rodriguez, who's he's going to push the pace and force you to try to fight his game plan. So if the fight were to go to decision, it's going to be close. Five rounds, typically with five rounds, and it's close, you're going to see like three completely different scorecards. I mean, it just makes sense. Not because it's bad judging, just because it's five rounds. Now for Rodriguez, a very exciting fighter. He fights with a bit of a chip on his shoulder. He comes into every fight kind of like me against the world mentality, right? His last fight against Brian Ortega, if you don't remember it, shoulder injury for Ortega very early on. It was just a fluke thing. No damage had been done. I felt bad for both fighters. He felt bad for Ortega. He had to bow out of a fight where it was just a fluke shoulder injury for Yaya Rodriguez. You know, he's out for blood. He wants to fight. He's a guy who it seems like he enjoys the madness of being in the cage and actually fighting. So he was left with, you know, his appetite, you know, just not, not quite satisfied. Um, now he's back in there, a chance to fight for the title now. So even bigger stakes. Anyway, that was the fight against Ortega. Um, we mentioned before when he fought Max Holloway first round landed 60 strikes in one round leg kicks can be crippling like I feel like when he kicks someone with his when he kicks someone I think he's kicking them too hard meaning like he's gonna like hurt his own leg and he probably does do some damage to his own legs that's just the kind of the way he fights but kicks with uh yeah reckless abandon will kick outside lower leg kicks inside lower leg kicks he had Max Holloway dancing at times on his feet because he's trying to avoid the kicks. <laughs> um, now, Yair has a, a showmanship about him. If you haven't heard his interviews or heard him talk, he's a showman. He's not a jerk about it. He's not doing stuff like disrespectful to the other fighter. I mean, he's just, he's a guy who likes to be behind the camera. He's multilingual, speaks good English, speaks Spanish, so on and so on. In the cage during fights, he'll do things at times to, you know, get the people going. And it's a live crowd, pay-per-view, coming event. Neither fighters from Australia, so we have a neutral fan base. You know, could his, you know, just his jiving and what he does, could that propel the, the crowd, get them going? They're going to be hyped either way. But, you know, just the way he carries himself. So, Yair has this sort of spunk, um, swagger, if I could use that word um, or style or just sort of charisma about him. I expect to see that if the fight gets late, you know, he's bleeding, uh, Emmett's bleeding. You know, it's all going to be this like Rocky movie type of scene. And he, he thrives in that. Okay. So he enjoys that. And it comes off as confidence. That's important to note. It comes off as confidence. The same reasons why we like Ayer Rodriguez, the relentless forward pressure, Tons of combinations, high volume, not much of a grappler, not much of a wrestler, but on the feet stuff, putting on a show. The same reason why we like him, we have concerns also about how that can drag him down a deep, dark hole and maybe bring him in a situation where he could lose a fight. For example, he gets so focused on putting on a show, he puts aside potentially maybe his cardio late in the fight. Will he have the gas tank in round four or five? 
gets so wrapped up in the moment that I've seen him in a round where he was ahead in the round. Uh, example, he fought Max Holloway, lost the fight by decision, but in round one, a round that he may have won or lost, I don't know, early in the round, he's winning the round. He's ahead. He's landing nicer combinations. And it's like, it's not enough. It's like he just keeps engaging, keeps engaging. Well, now Holloway tags him with a few punches. Evens out things. Next thing you know, you see Yair's bleeding. And I'm like, you, you know, you didn't have to do all that in round one. You you had yourself, you know, you could have paced things. So there's no, like, pacing with him. <laughs> there's pace and pressure, yeah, as in putting the pressure on his opponent. But the same reasons you love the the confidence and this, you know, Mexican pride. He's from Mexico, and he's got this, like, warrior mentality that the spirit of those former boxers, like Julio, Julio Cesar Chavez and and the likes of those kind of warriors, that mentality where they really do enjoy this a little more than the average fighter. He's got that. But could that drag him to a place where it's like he's doing things that are out of character, putting himself in a bad position, Emmett staying calm. Emmett doesn't win this fight because he comes in there and fights Yair's game. No. Emmett doesn't go in there and over overdo overcome, you know, I'm sorry, overrun him with volume and push him back and land a bunch of nice clean combinations and kick a bunch of lower leg kicks. No, no, no. Emmett wins this fight by picking here and there, landing one or two big punches, putting some cut damage on the face of Yair, frustrating Yair, getting that one and a half, two takedowns over the course of the five rounds, right? Averaging one takedown per three rounds and just get to these greasy scorecards. Now, who knows? What would the audience be like? Will the audience be pro-US? Will they be pro-Mexico? I don't know. It's Australia, mate. I have no idea. That was a terrible accent. Try, but I tried. Back to this breakdown here. Yeah, we started off on the side of Emmett, and we ended up you know, coming full circle. So it's pay-per-view. For a ratings perspective, you love fighters like Yair. He's going to give you your money's worth. He's going to throw a lot of punches. He has a high absorption rate, right? And then my man over here, Emmett, has a negative striking ratio. If you put that together with the high output at times of Yair, we're going to see a lot of punches landed. We are going to see damage to the face. We're going to see bleeding. There will be blood, as I said. There will be blood. This fight could play out several ways. We can expect it to be a competitive fight, at least for the first two, three rounds, no matter how the actual final outcome is. So the first, let's say half, like, you know, you're watching a basketball game or a football game, the first half. So the first two and a half rounds of this fight, we're expecting it to be, to look close. We've had some moments. We're starting to see the facial damage. Halfway point. After that, I think championship rounds are going to be determined or outcomes in those rounds will be determined by the war of attrition. What does the war of attrition mean? The word of attrition means whoever is surviving, <laughs> you know, this battle that could be a little bit cardio, but like, you know, facial damage cuts, uh, little injuries, you know, five rounds, 25 minutes, you start banging long enough fingers, things start to pile up. So the war of attrition, you want to think Yair is enough of a madman that it's like you're going to have to sort of drag him out of there. So, so maybe he's got this like mental little bit of an edge. But Josh Emmett is like a soldier, man. He looks like a soldier. He's, you know, he's a guy, he, you know, he's in the same fight. He's in the same business. 
the hurt business, right? Um, lost my train of thought there for a second, kind of got off on a tantrum. But what I see is this, yes, round four, round five, this becomes a war of attrition, not not an issue of who's the better fighter, just who's still surviving, who's still, you know, left piece together. And from that perspective, that's why it feels like this fight does not go to the scorecards. We'll talk about those lines in a second. Because when you look at the fight initially, you're like, oh, these are two guys that, you know, smaller weight, you know, whatever, athletic. Yeah, he's a little aggressive, but Emmett can circle, you know, he could take his time. But then you look more at it and you're just like, you know what, they're going to start tossing. They're going to start throwing hands. It's going to happen pretty early. The crowd is not going to allow them to mess around for two, three rounds. They're going to, they would be booing too loud. It's the co-main event. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. They're going to force them to fight basically, right? So anyway, in summary, in closing, I think Yair's propensity for violence, no matter how he gets it, like a you know like a animal thirsting for that taste of blood again after their first kill, I think he comes in here real thirsty after that last fight where he couldn't fight with Ortega. He pushes pace, even to his own detriment. <clears throat> Emmett has to survive that first wave. Emmett needs to get the fight later on. Either way, I think we see a bloody contest. And somehow, Rodriguez comes out on top. Specifically, my little Houdini crystal ball tells me it's by a cut sometime around the 2 minute and 35 second mark of round number 4. What if that happens, right? The bets we like here for this fight, the specific bets, or the spots we're going to at least look to bet. Of course, our official bet sheet comes out via our Substack newsletter. Promo for the newsletter. Please subscribe to our newsletter. It's on Substack, absolutely free. You get full card breakdowns. You also get a full write-up. Um, not a write-up. You get a full, excuse me, tip sheet. Completely full tip sheet of our prop bets, parlays, individual bets. All nice and clean organized for you. Our unit amounts, the payouts. You get all of that there. Emailed right to your inbox. You can review it whenever you want to review it. Pull it up on your computer. Look at it on the website on your phone we don't spam you that's for all ufc cards all bellator cards pretty much all pfl cards most pfl cards most invicta cards so the main stuff that's out there for mixed martial arts it's our free Substack newsletter again it's a written version of what in essence you're hearing here now there's a little more numbers in there because i don't read all the numbers when we're doing these breakdowns but there's numbers in there like striking stats wrestling stats your recent fight history, odds, the whole nine. We also have our prop bets we're looking at, all the, all the odds that are associated with that. That's all in our newsletter, 100% free. Subscribe to that today. The link is down below. It's all run through Substack. No spamming, no credit cards, no information. Subscribe today. So when I'm referring to the newsletter, that's what I'm talking about. So the spots we like for this fight, the prop bets, the fight not going the distance is actually plus money at plus 100. Not big time plus money, but it's plus 100. We're going to play that. We just don't see the Yair fight going the full distance. Not 25 minutes. Not with him in there. He's just too much of a madman. Over two and a half rounds, minus 280. We're going to look at this and maybe end up not playing it because I could see scenarios where it could end before then. And so that over two and a half rounds, I think that's that juicy spot where I said halfway point of the fight, we're going to start seeing some damage. You know, things are going to start unraveling. So 
at minus 280, there's not a big return there. So probably I'm going to pass on that spot, but at least you know where that stands at. Yeah, you're inside the distance is plus 255. Not bad. M inside the distance is plus 285. Okay. Five rounds is just simply a long time for your year. We don't see it happening. At some point, he either outworks Emmett and puts Emmett away, creates enough damage or cut whatever, or in the process of trying to do that, Yair just destroys himself like a robot with no chill button on him and just keeps going and going to the point where he just runs himself to the ground and he ends up getting himself finished. That's your breakdown for the co-main event for UFC 284. Yair Rodriguez versus Josh Emmett. And that again is going to be for the featherweight strap, the vacant, I'm sorry, not vacant, interim featherweight belt. So we'll see what happens here. We like Yair Rodriguez, but like we said, full disclosure, we were on Josh Emmett at first and he clearly has methods to win this fight and could do some things to keep it close. And if it's super close, split decision, you know, who knows what the crowd's going to be like. Again, no one here is Australian, so we'll see what happens. That's your breakdown, guys. Let's move on to the main event. And here we are at the main event. The light heavyweight strap is on the line. 155 pounders between Islam Makachev, the Russian, versus the hometown kid, Alexander Volkanovsky from Australia, who goes by the great Alexander the Great. You kind of get that moniker there. Let me give you our pick real quickly to get out of the way. We like Islam Makachev to win by round three submission. That is our pick. Current lines on these guys. Islam's like a minus uh, 350, minus 400 favorite in that range. You got Alexander Volkanovsky hovering around plus 325 or so. A lot of line movement. By disrespect to Volkanovsky, right? Who's, you know, in frequent circles talked about as the pound for pound guy. Uh, so we'll break it down for you guys. We'll go over some numbers first. Let's talk about the basics on these two fighters. Islam is 23 and 1 overall, 5 and 1 in his last five fights. Prohibitive, prohibitive favorite here, around minus 380 to minus 400 from that little place in the world called Mashkala, Russia. 31 years old, 5 foot 10 in height with a 70 and a half inch reach, and he's out of Fight Spirit Team, KHK MMA Team. And depends, I don't know, I guess done some training at AKA. Obviously, under the tutelage of Khabib, we'll talk more about that, but uh, he's got some good training partners, okay? He's part of that whole Dagestani knuckle gang. As for Alexander Volkanovsky, 25 and 1 overall, my man's looking for his 22nd win in a row. Wow. He's the big underdog here, fighting at home in Australia, 34 years old. A little bit older here, but by no means approaching his tail end of his career, but in the midst of his prime. Put it that way. Five foot six, about four inches shorter than Makachev. 71 and a half inch reach, about a one and a half inch reach advantage there for Mr. Volkanovsky. And Volkanovsky has trained at some of the top gyms in the world. I believe he mixes things up, moves things around. He's trained at Tiger Muay Thai. He's trained at Freestyle Fighting Gym and some other spots. Again, whatever he's doing works for him. <laughs> he does a good job. That's why he's currently the featherweight champion and not going for a second belt to hold them both at the same time, right? That'd be amazing. For Volkanovsky, he is a southpaw. I'm sorry, for, for Islam Makachev. Makachev is a southpaw, 25 total fights under his belt. Average fight time of nine minutes and six seconds per fight, landing just 2.37 strikes per minute. Very low volume. Why? Well, he's usually busy choking people. He only absorbs 0.95 strikes per minute, so less than one strike per minute because, again, these people are on the ground. They're on their back. He's trying to choke them, trying to submit them. That's why the low striking numbers. 
Now for takedown numbers, 3.42 takedowns per fight or per 15 minutes and averaging 88% takedown defense. So wrestling is clearly one of his real strong areas and obviously submissions. He's won by submission in four of his last five fights. He's won his last five fights in a row into the distance, high finish rate, obviously has the pedigree, having been trained under Khabib Nurmagomedov's father with Khabib. And for a long time, we heard rumors about this guy. We heard rumors about how good he was. You know, there was stuff going on, you know, the dark corners of the mixed martial arts world. You don't hear everything, but rumors that he would be the next coming, right? He is arriving. He is the next coming. He's the one now taking the torch from Khabib. He's a very balanced fighter. He could fight in the feet, but obviously does his best work on the ground. Our concerns for Islam Makachev, and there's not really many you can have. You know, we're, we're splitting hairs here, but number one, we could argue that this is going to be his best opponent. Of course, the win over Charles Oliveira is huge, and, and that deserves a lot of praise. But if we're looking at, like, right now, this day, currently, who's the one that seems like the bigger fish or the, or, the, or the bigger reward or the fighter that when you look back in 10 years from now that you look at his resume and say, oh, he beat that guy? Charles Oliveira's got a name, but will it be Alexander Volkanovsky as the, the bigger legend because of the long winning streak, because he has another belt, because he's going for two belts, so on and so on? So from that standpoint, I do think this is a little bit bigger of a mountain to climb for Islam. Now, earning the belt the first time, getting over that hump, that's a big one. He beat, you know, obviously, Oliver, very impressive. This one's a different mountain to climb. Volkanovsky is the pound-for-pound best fighter by some people's uh, interpretation. He currently has a belt in another division. He's on the cusp of doing something historic here also fighting in his home country of Australia. So we could make good arguments that this is the best opponent that Islam has ever faced and the most challenging of circumstances, right? No more Khabib in the corner. What does that mean? Well, that means the final days, final hours, final minutes of preparation, even in the locker room. We don't have that presence. We don't have Khabib. We don't have him giving advice in the corner. Will that make a difference? Well, let me put it this way. Is that going to help him to not have Khabib around? I don't think it could help him, right? So we have to at least acknowledge not having one of the best that ever did it, who's his, you know, corner guy, his brother in terms of, you know, they pray together, all this all this routine. And for whatever reason, Khabib felt the impulse right now to say, I'm, I'm spending time with family. I'm, I'm dropping the traveling and stuff. It's too much. I'll be here in... in uh, Dagestan would come back and train with me, come train with me, but otherwise I'm not going to the fights and stuff. So can we measure that? And I'll give you a comparison. Mike Tyson, for those who don't know, he got his foundation in boxing because of a fighter named Customato, a fighter, a, a trainer named Customato who lived up in the Catskills of New York. And that's like outside of New York City, a ways away from the city. And by getting Mike Tyson up to those mountains and hills and just getting him away from everything, was able to sort of get like a, a peace of mind and eventually, you know, sort of harness that energy that Mike Tyson had and became the youngest heavyweight champion ever at 18 under this guy, Customato, who had a lineage training of the fighters before. But the point is, when Customato got old and passed away and no longer was in the ear of Mike Tyson and Mike Tyson started to get into the hands of other handlers, eventually what happened happened, right? It's been well documented. So in the case of this situation here, I don't believe that Islam is in fear of that kind of craziness happening. He's a little more well-rounded, a little more grounded of an individual, and he's got his faith. But still, it's a change in the dynamic, a change in the recipe. The one blemish he has in his career is the one loss he had where he got knocked out. This is back in like 2016 or something like that. But I want to go back. 
if you don't mind with me, let's go way back, 2016, so roughly about four, three, seven years ago, okay? He loses in round one to a gentleman named Adriano Martins. Who's Adriano Martins, you ask? Who is this gentleman? I'm gonna talk about this gentleman on this weekend's Midnight MMA show because there's sometimes you come across these these weird things and you're like, what the hell? Well, okay, Martins knocks out Islam Akachev in 2016 at UFC 192 in round one, mind you. Dominant performance, right? Where do their career paths go from there? Well, for Islam, we do kind of know what happened, right? Pretty obvious. He goes undefeated from that standpoint, from that point in time, wins 11 straight fights, earns the title last fight against Charles Oliveira, and now is defending the title in UFC 284 against Volkanovski. That's where his career has gone since then. What happened to Adriano Martins? My man hasn't won a fight since then. He's got 0-5-1 since that time. He got cut by the UFC two fights later in like 2017. So about a year later, two fights later, he gets cut, goes to a smaller promotion, never wins another fight. <laughs> Last fight was in 2021. Go figure, man. At that And that night when he had just beaten Islam, we didn't know Islam was going to become who he is. But in that moment, you're like, which career is going in the better direction? And <laughs> look at that. One more thing about Islam. I know I'm splitting hairs here. How will he look in round four or five? We know what Volkanovski looks like. He's been there. How will Islam respond? Could that be a problem for him later on getting tired? For Volkanovski, landing 6.79 strikes per minute, high output, high volume, only absorbing 3.53. Love the ratio. Averaging 1.71 takedowns per 15 minutes with 73% takedown defense. Those are solid numbers, and he'll need some of that takedown defense because you know Islam will be fishing for takedowns. Volkanovski, average fight time. Let's check this out. Average fight time, 16 minutes and 50 seconds. That's incredible. That's because of all the four and five round fights this guy's been through. So he's been those championship rounds, and he's averaging over three rounds per fight. What's to like about Alexander? His winning streak, looking for his 22nd win in a row. He has big wins over pretty good fighters, Ortega, Jose Aldo, Max Holloway three times. His cardio checks out, been to late rounds, fought championship rounds plenty of time. Very durable. When I say durable, I'm talking about Ortega almost choking him out, and this man just somehow fighting the submission off that guillotine, which is burned in your head. This man defines durability. And then fighter IQ, Volkanovski can make adjustments throughout the fight. His, his ability to make in-fight adjustments is key. High fighter IQ, he does what it takes to win fights. My concerns for Volkanovski, finishing ability, that could be better. He's not an amazing finisher. Eight of his last 11 fights have gone to decision. And then now I'm splitting hairs here. I'm just going to put this little theory out there for you. When I looked at his topology and history, I kind of forgot. And I was like, wait a second. Before the Max Holloway trilogy, mind you, three fights with Max Holloway, Volkanovski wasn't really on the map. And so I concluded, as I think you'll agree with me on this one, that Volkanovski gets on, put on the map because of the trilogy with with Max Holloway and the fight with Ortega, and then that cements his current status as pound for pound, going for two titles, very active, so on and so on. And I say all this because if Holloway had gotten one of those split decisions, which it was a split decision, loss for him, or if Holloway had won those fights, would Holloway be in that classification? I mean, there was a moment there where Ortega almost submitted Volkanovski. I'm just saying it's like there's a fine line between Volkanovski being this guy going for his 22nd straight win and for two titles at the same time 
and Volkanovski maybe having lost a fight or so a few fights ago and not being what he is. So um, I guess what I'm saying to you is I think that the competition level for Volkanovski up until this fight right here has been good. But it's not like, you know, when you look at some of these like fighters, even female fighters, you look at their topology and it's like, oh my gosh, they fought all these top, the best of the best in the world. You don't really see that with Volkanovski. He has fought some good fighters, but I'm just saying, I, I think uh, maybe, you know, people think he's fought maybe better than people than you might think. All right, a few more notes here. So we like Islam Makachev to win round three submission. We like Islam Makachev for the same reasons everyone else does. Excellent submission skills, championship pedigree, world-class wrestling. On a spiritual level, he is carrying the torch, the lineage for Khabib Nurmagomedov and his father. He'll have a few inches in height over Volkanovski, but Volkanovski will have the reach advantage. Volk is the more compact of the two fighters, more built like a fire hydrant, if you can imagine that. And how does that play out in the fight? Well, for example, submissions. Islam is the leaner fighter, longer fighter, longer arms. The ability to do submissions just easier for him based upon his physique. Whereas with someone like Volkanovski, it doesn't, it's not as easy, but that way, shorter arms, more compact. You kind of catch my drift. And for Islam, four of his last five wins have been submission wins. When it comes to finishing, there is no comparison. Islam is a much higher level finisher and has a higher finishing rate where Alexander Volkanovski, we just mentioned before, eight of his last 11 fights have gone to decision. Volkanovski is blazing a trail and setting records in the process. He's entering this fight as the UFC featherweight champion, current featherweight champion, looking for his 22nd win in a row. A win for Volkanovski will make him a two-division champion. He'll have the lightweight crown and featherweight division crown. Based upon conversations he's had recently with media, he intends to keep both, defend both, and be very active. He also mentioned that he's getting to a point in his career where it's sort of like get busy now because he feels like in a few years, maybe as he gets older, he's going to have to slow down and take less fights. So for now, he wants to be busy. Oh, what else do I have here, Mr. Volkanovski? Oh, his athletic background. If you don't know, he has a very interesting, you know, played rugby. He was at a much higher weight and, you know, just did a few different things. They obviously did some wrestling, national team, I believe, in Australia. But the one constant with him, the one thing that has not changed throughout his evolution going through different sports is his thrill of competing. He loves to compete. He feeds on it. You could sense it when he talks. It's a He's a man who's committed to his craft. I can imagine if you're playing like a, a game of Scrabble with him, he's coming to compete. <laughs> you know, that's just kind of the, the attitude that he has. And I think that's one thing that throughout his life, you know, has not changed. Once that flame kind of goes out, it's probably when he'll, he'll hang it up. But one of the reasons why he's so active is because of that, because that desire to compete. So when he says, I'm going to hold on to two belts, keep them both and be active, I believe it. Now, think about this. If you're the UFC, you have a win-win situation. Islam wins, you're fine. The featherweight crown still stays in Volkanovski's hands. Both of them are still champions. All is well. Big time pepper view event. Everyone wins, right? But don't think for a second that Volkanovski winning would be bad for the UFC. They would have their bona fide, pound for pound, universally accepted, their man. They'll do a rematch in like six, seven, eight months, or maybe early next year. It'll be all hyped up. It'll be huge. Volkanovski maybe loses the rematch, but still gets the belt for you know a half a year or so as a two you know two division champ. Whatever they do with it, they can market the hell out of this guy. He's likable. He speaks well. Uh, people like his story. I think he's very blue collar. Like he doesn't have the perfect size. He's a little bit shorter. Whatever else, 
His wife's kind of tall. So I think Volkanovski speaks to the average man. And when it comes to marketing, I don't mean to get all like political on you guys, but like marketing a Russian fighter in a sport that's got a lot of Russians, you know, uh, with a harsher accent and he's, you know, Muslim and stuff versus the Volkanovski, hey, mate, you know, like from down on the, and like having that whole vibe and he's like all cool and stuff. And, you know, so I, I'm just putting it all out there. I think if, if he were to win, it's great. If Islam wins, it's great. Uh, I think it's a, it's a win-win situation, right? Now, for Volkanovski, a win puts him, like, catapults him into the conversation of GOAT. Best of all time. One of the few that ever held two titles at the same time. So, I could see it. It wouldn't be bad for UFC. And if you could take the fight till round four and five, where we really haven't seen Islam have to function, fatigue makes a coward of us all, as they say in sports. All right, let me wrap this up here. The betting spots that we like for this main event fight. The fight not to the distance is minus 200. I know Volkanovski goes a distance. It's part of his thing. And maybe it goes a distance. It could happen. I have a prop bet for that too. But it just seems to me like, you know, you give these guys 25 minutes, someone's going to get hurt. And it feels like that's plenty enough time for Islam to find a submission at some point. <clears throat> Even though, again, we've seen, you know, of course, Volkanovski defend submissions. So minus 200 for the fight, not going to decision. Under four and a half rounds is minus 165. Islam Makachev by decision. I'm sorry, by submission, excuse me, it's plus 150. That'll be a popular play. And obviously the books know at plus 150 is not a ton of value. Volkanovski by decision is plus 600. Definitely got to consider this. Eight of his last 11 fights, eight of his last 11 wins by decision. He's fighting a guy maybe that's the best opponent he's ever fought, right? So Volkanovski wins this fight. I don't see him like maybe finishing Makachev, but maybe doing enough in a few rounds. Which brings me to the last prop. Sprinkle the split decision prop. It's main event. It's Australia. If a round is close, the crowd's going to go bananas for Volkanovski. The roaring, the atmosphere, the energy. Excuse me. So a close decision could be in the works. And if that happens, we got a split. I'm just saying I'm going to sprinkle those props, those props on both sides for both fighters for a split decision. Now, if it goes you know, the way that I think it'll go, I think Islam wins. I think it's a submission, but I'm just paying another picture for you. We cannot forget. We mustn't or mustn't, excuse me, forget this fight's being held in Volkanovski's backyard in Australia. Final fight of the night. There's going to be mayhem. The beers will be flowing. A Volkanovski win would set the place ablaze. <laughs> ablaze, right? So just keep that in mind. That's our breakdown for the main event, guys. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll move on to the outro video just summary of all our picks, get you all up to speed on everyone from the beginning to the end and give you a few promo spots before we let you go. All right, let's move on. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this brings us to the end of the episode. We want to thank you for joining us for this breakdown of UFC 284, Makachev versus Volkanovski coming up this Saturday in Australia. Here's your quick picks. We like Islam Makachev in the main event to win, Yair Rodriguez to win, Jack Della Matalana to win, Justin Taffa to win, Alonzo Menafield to win as an underdog. We also like Modestus Bukalkis as another underdog to win, Joshua Kulabal to win, Clayton Rodriguez to win, Jamie Malarkey to win, but Francisco Prado is impressive, though we still like Malarkey. Jack Jenkins, a lot of confidence in him to win, Luma Lukbume to win, Blake Biller to win as another underdog, and then Zubaria Tukov to win his fight. Those are your quick picks for UFC 284. We do a Substack newsletter. It's available, it's free, the link's down below. 
consider subscribing because here's what you get with that. A full card breakdown every single week, written format, arrives like on Tuesday, Wednesday of the week. Full card breakdown, all nice and written up for you, arrives in your email. Second thing you get is a tip sheet, our full tip sheet for all the bets we're placing for every single UFC, Bellator, PFL, Invicta card. So you'll get like two, three emails a week from us with exactly the information I'm telling you. No spamming, no advertisements, none of that horse hockey. Pretty simple, straightforward. So go below, click the link for our Substack link there, subscribe to our Substack newsletter. They have an app, you get it on your phone, the whole nine. That's number one. Number two, subscribe to this channel if you want more of this content. Follow us on Twitter and follow us on Instagram where you can get more information about our picks, what's going on, news, interviews. So how can you help this channel? I just kind of gave you the, the format, right? Just liking, subscribing. There's no paywall here. There's nothing behind a paywall. We don't have a Patreon account. Maybe down the road in the future when we grow and you know we're at that point. But for now, how can you help us? Like, subscribe, share, follow our socials, leave some comments. Thank you again for joining us. This is your full card breakdown for UFC 284 coming up this weekend. Enjoy the fights and we'll see you guys soon. Deuces.